I'm really excited to share the word this morning. Um, I'm so sad. I've been asked by a certain individual in our church to share on this verse basically since the first time I stepped into this pulpit and he's not here this morning and I'm sad. Um, But anyway, it's recorded and someone can uh, help him with the technology so that he can listen to it. Uh, I'm going to just read our verse for today. Uh, You can turn with me. I'm not sure if we managed to get it on the screen. We're a little uh, pressed with our media people uh, this morning because Tash was up here and she can't be in two places at once as talented as she is. Um, So uh, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 22. Uh, From verse 1 to 14, I don't think we've got it, so you'll have to actually look it up, guys. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, was, uh, who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, look, I have prepared uh, my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Verse 5. Says, but they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets, gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. In verse 11, it says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would have ears to hear. Lord, that you would give us vision for what you're trying to say to us this morning, God, that we would be able to see uh, through who you are what this word is communicating to us. Lord, we just pray uh, that this would be something that we would take away life from, that we would see you revealed in this text and what we share this morning. God, I pray that what I bring, what I say will be of you and not of me. God, I just pray for focus and that you would, uh, that you would lead me as I share this this morning. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been not only sharing from our passages, but also talking about uh, some people who have been living this kingdom revolution. And this morning, we're going to be speaking about a person you may or may not be familiar with called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian and was... uh, came to prominence just before the Second World War and most probably most well known for what happened to him during the Second World War uh, in that as a revolutionary against uh, the Nazi regime, he ultimately uh, was sentenced to death uh, by the regime. He, uh, his 
choice to stand up against what uh, or for what he thought was right ultimately cost him his life. Uh, he, uh, along with some other theologians, Karl Barth and others, rejected allegiance to the Nazi regime based on, uh, this was before things got really like what we would see as, you know, what we see in the Nazi regime uh, as being completely like you would recognise this is wrong. But even when uh, the, the political language started uh, to come out of uh, that party, he and others recognised that this was not something that was compatible with their view of who God was. They understood that uh, the, the language of control questioned the sovereignty of God, that they were speaking things that weren't necessarily in line with who they knew God to be. And so they began a resistance. See, the warning signs were there in Nazi Germany long before people were marched into death camps because there was a manipulation, a twisting of the word of God and uh, there were leaders that were hijacking people like a shallow view of morality to try and uh, garner support for a a controlling regime. Um, That's definitely not something that we would see in today's day and age at all, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But the warning signs were there that ultimately the nations of the world, because of what happened, would be thrown into ruin. I wonder how many of us see that this verse in Matthew 22, where Jesus is talking about uh, the wedding feast, how many of us would see that Jesus was actually speaking a warning at the time To those he was speaking to, they would have immediately recognised the wedding feast was referring to a prophecy in Isaiah 25. And it didn't just speak about a wedding feast, but it's also a tale of a city that's thrown into ruin. It's also the tale of a city that comes ultimately under the judgment of a God that has... uh, that has just like called them to something different, and they're living a way that doesn't look like what he had uh, he had desired for them. And their city, it says in the beginning of so verse twenty five in uh, Isaiah, and you don't need to turn there, but in in chapter uh, verse six, sorry, it talks about. Uh, in Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for the people of all the world. It will be a delicious banquet uh, with well-aged wine and choice meat. Uh, it goes on to about like how good the wedding feast is. This is what, when Jesus speaks in Isaiah 22, he's ap- appealing to. And so the people hearing him would have immediately gone to this place in the text that they knew. Well, right before it, in from verse 1, it talks about how the Lord had um, uh, the Lord is worthy of honor and praise he says he does wonderful things uh, but then it says you turn mighty cities into heaps of ruin cities with strong walls are turned to rubble beautiful places in distant lands disappear and will never be rebuilt and then the entire verse in uh, the entire chapter uh, in 26, and if you understand, like the biblical text didn't actually have breaks in between. So when they read the the 
part about the wedding feast, what they would know is immediately after is what's in 26, talks about two cities, one that the Lord is making strong, we're surrounded by walls of God's salvation, open the gates to all who are righteous, but then it talks about how he humbles the proud and brings down the arrogant cities. See a picture of two cities. So when Jesus speaks about the wedding feast in this chapter, there's a warning that comes. And if you think that I might just be drawing lines that aren't there, you can follow the verses along in Matthew and you'll find that in the same story, because if you see at the beginning of each chapter, it says, and then Jesus said, and then it said, and then the same, at the same time, Jesus was leaving the temple ground. So we're still in the same, uh, the same uh, conversation. He's in the same conversation and he begins to tell about the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem. There's in verse 23, uh, chapter 23 and verse 37, sorry, it talks about how Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the destruction that's to come. And chapter 24, it talks about, or the title in my Bible is Jesus foretells the future. He talks about how not one stone would be left on top of another. Jesus is speaking to what's going to happen to that city because they ultimately reject him. He's speaking to what is going to happen to the people that choose not to live the way that he has been talking about and teaching what it comes to. And what we know from history is that in AD 70, everything that Jesus speaks about happening, it happens. And Rome ultimately destroys the city. Um, the Roman Empire destroys the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and everything that is laid out in terms of what he predicts is going to happen, it happens. And, uh, and so not only is the verse in Isaiah, the, like that story about two cities, what, um, what he's going to do is that fulfilled, but we see what Jesus has said is going to happen, the outcome or what he, um, what he speaks to. It happens. Why am I reading this text this morning? Why are we looking at it this morning? Well, it's not just a picture of what happened then, but that verse in Isaiah, the tale of two cities, where we stand now, it's actually a warning to us. It's a, it's a story about us. It's a story about uh, whether or not we choose to accept or whether or not we choose to live the way that Jesus has set out for us to live and what will ultimately come of us, whether we will come to a place of destruction or whether we'll come to a place where, like in the Isaiah verse, it says his, uh, in his city the walls are strengthened and the gates are open to all people. I titled uh, this first part uh, by, I, I've titled, I've made my points or whatever, titles, um, quotes, Bonhoeffer quotes, just because it works. Um, so 
if you're taking notes, you can make point one. We are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. See, what we see in Isaiah is that it's laid out for us how we are to live out the call of God on our lives, how we are to live out the call as God's people and ultimately what happens when we don't. The reason I chose this quote is because when we start to recognize what this means for us, it means not just a handout, it means not just uh, addressing the issues that are in our own lives, but looking at the bigger picture. It means not just, um, you know, throwing some change in someone's hat when they're sitting on a street corner with a sign saying, help, I'm homeless, but actually addressing why that person's sitting there in the first place. It means we look at why our cities are coming to a point of destruction and addressing the things that have led us to that place in the first place. We address the things that are bringing people to ruin by living out who God's called us to be. Call it chapter 2. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. I like that one. See, when, uh, when Jesus appeals to the Isaiah text in this chapter in Matthew, it's already controversial. Because he's not just saying that those who are in his company are invited. But if he's appealing to the verse in Isaiah, it says that all the people of the world are invited. And that's not necessarily a story that the religious elite of the time liked to hear. Sometimes it's not even a story that we like to hear. That the church exists for more than just those of us sitting in the chairs this morning, but the church exists to be the light to the world, not just so that they come and fill these seats, but just so that they would recognize and experience the love of God. Our call is not just to outreach and evangelize, but to love people. One thing, if you read this story start to finish of the wedding feast, you might not recognize, but it's actually kind of two stories. It's even separated generally in your Bible, you might see. Uh, it's sometimes even called the um, two wedding stories. Even though it reads as one narrative, there's two things going on. The first is that all in, are invited, and the second part is that there comes a point of judgment. I find, or probably why it's taken me three years to get to a place of being uh, willing to open up a text like this on a Sunday morning is because we find this difficult to deal with, right? I've always considered what this means for me because it's not, while I might 
not have preached on it. I've definitely read it. And it takes, you know, you sit and you go, God, what are you saying? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for my friends? What does this mean for our church? I've heard it taught that salvation was the garment. And maybe it is. I've heard it taught that all it takes is to accept Jesus and that's the garment that we're given. Let's just jump into Mark 1 verse 15. You can go there if you like. Maybe the garment is salvation. What does that look like? If I was going to give this message a title, I would say the how is the why and the why is the how. Mark 1, verse 15. It says, The time promised by God has come at last. He announced, The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I love the gospel of Mark. Sometimes it's like Matthew's the storyteller and Mark is like the to-the-point guy. You know, like you've got friends like that. You've got friends who will like take 15 minutes and four different stories and, and uh, you know, different ways to explain something and you're still caught not entirely sure what they're saying. Like That's like Matthew's gospel. Everything is explained. All the parables are laid out and we see um, you know, so much in the stories. Mark is to the point. And so this is like a summary of what Jesus was teaching. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Sometimes we think the garment is believing. But it's not simply a belief that brings us to a point of salvation, but it's that first bit. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. Or the Bible puts it, faith without works is dead. Not yet alive. Faith without works doesn't work. We can't say we believe when it has no effect on who we are. It's the response without repentance. It's a decision or is it discipleship? It's got to be more than just deciding that we believe. It's got to be more than just raising a hand. This garment that we're talking about, that the man was found without and questioned by the king, is not whether or not you raised a hand in a meeting but it's whether or not you chose to become a follower of Jesus. To be dressed for an occasion means wearing what is appropriate for the time and place. And this is why we're talking about what the time and place that we're in in the world right now 
That's why we talk about what it means to who we, you know, how we relate to the world. That's why we're talking about the kingdom of God and talking about where we're headed as a church because how can we know how to be dressed for an occasion if we don't even recognize the time and place that we're in? Is what we are wearing appropriate for the kingdom that is coming? Is what we're wearing appropriate for the place we've been invited to in God? Is what we're wearing appropriate for who we're called to be? This is the question in the second part of this text. See, sometimes we think we know where we're headed. We think we know what is right and what's wrong. And we decide that we can get there by any means possible. But in Christianity, in following Jesus, the means is the message and the message is the means. The way that you get there counts. The way that you choose to relate to others whether you're right or wrong in what you've decided is good for them or whether it looks like what you know, we'll say is biblical or is the way that we relate to them in how. And this is why we've been talking about things that are going on in our society right now. The way that we're choosing to relate to that is important. Because when they came to Jesus and said, what is the most important commandment? He said to love God and love others as you love yourself. And so compassion and the way that we relate to other people is as important as, well, I think it's more important than the outcome. See, God is responsible for the outcome. God is responsible for defining in a person's life what is right or wrong, what we are called to, what we are responsible for is the way that we love others. I had a great conversation with my Muslim friend. We went for coffee at King's Park and ended up talking for three hours about who Jesus was and I kept trying to change the subject but it, it was like she was so excited to ask what was, you know, what is this about? What is, what is, like, what was he teaching? And, uh, and I was explaining what, uh, how we can see God's future, his promises, that it's actually a good thing, that where we're headed as a world, there is hope for the world and that Jesus claimed to be that hope and opening up that. And then the question she asked me was, but How? And the answer to that question is by being followers of Jesus, is by being ones who actually live out what he taught, is by actually taking seriously the things that he set out in his word, like loving others as we love ourselves. See, there's another verse in the Bible that this chapter relates to, and you can find it in Revelations 19. I'm going to read it for you. From verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honour to him for the time has come for the wedding feast 
of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She, was, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. I love when you have questions about the Bible. If you read the Bible long enough, half the time it answers its own questions. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of holy people. Am I telling you that you can do enough good things to be clothed in righteousness? No. What I'm telling you is you can't repent without turning around, without acting differently, without living differently, without doing the good deeds of God's holy people. You can't repent without there being a change, not just inwardly, but outwardly. When there is a change inwardly, there is an outward change. Sometimes that's a process. For me, when I came to faith, it was not a, I raised my hand and then I walked out and saw the world differently and suddenly loved everybody and had all the patience. Like, it wasn't like that. For me, I probably give a, a two-year space, a two-year, like when people say, oh, when did you get saved or when did you... Yeah. It's literally like a two-year window and it's somewhere in there. I don't know. It was a process. It was a messy process. But little by little, God had to deal with things on the inside that ultimately changed things on the outside. It's still a process. God is still dealing with things in me. The Bible also tells us to work out our salvation. It's always a process. It's always something that we need to be seeking to grow in, to develop. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen by lifting a hand. It doesn't just happen by changing what you think. Although that can be the start of it. There's so many verses, I like listed some, and I'm not even going to go through all of them, that talk about being clothed with righteousness. And the word righteousness and justice are so inherently linked, that's why we talk about being a church that, is, that values justice, values the things that need to be addressed, we're doing the things that need to be addressed in our world. Because that's what righteousness looks like. Sometimes that means personal choices that we make in our life that affect ourselves, our families, our bodies, our, our world. Sometimes that means recognising bigger systems and structures that need to be addressed, that need to change, where things are not the way that God has intended for them to be. Things that we are part of, that aren't necessarily do I drink, smoke or swear. You know, sometimes we get that and we think we're done. We're not done there. This is why it's a process. My third quote from Bonhoeffer. He talked about a time in his life where his religion went from phraseology to reality. And what that looks like from words to real life, from an understanding, and trust me, this guy had an understanding of something like two doctorate degrees by this stage in theology, and he still 
talking about coming to understand at a deeper level. Like, uh, I don't understand how this... So he's gone from uh, being in Germany to travelling to the US and finds himself in a theological college um, there to do some further study. And someone invites him to a church, Abyssinian Baptist Church. And it's one of the churches that we watch on Sunday nights sometimes, uh, which is really cool. Um, where the focus or what, um, what is at the core of who they are is a recognition that the gospel was written by an oppressed people by God who actually hears the cry of the oppressed. It was, and so this church is um, known for, for preaching or teaching and, and uh, living into um, liberation theology, the understanding that that's, um, you know, God's ultimate plan is for, uh, for everybody to be equal, not only uh, in the eyes of God, which we know they are, but for the world to actually recognise that uh, and addressing the systems and structures that uh, are at play with that. And so in this church in Harlem, in New York, this theologian who ended up teaching in Sunday school, which is crazy to me, but anyway, um, he ended up working in their Sunday school, says that he found the reality for what he had learned theoretically. By recognising people who were suffering and putting the understanding that he had of what was going on in the Bible into the context of the lives of people who had lived this struggle. See, when we recognise that the sin problem is bigger than just us, we realise that there's more than just our personal piety at stake. It's more than just about looking right on the outside, but we realise that the powers and principalities are not just things we yell into the dark about, but they actually are at play in our world and we can do and be part of and prayer and prayer warfare is so important in addressing those things, but so is addressing things in our own lives, our own actions, our own uh, taking part in things that are part of those systems. So is addressing uh, things in the world that are part of those systems that oppress people. When we recognise the suffering in the world, our faith moves from just me, personal salvation, and we talk a lot about that, it moves from me to us. And the reason I'm talking about Bonhoeffer this morning is because ultimately his life is a testimony to that movement from me to us. A personal salvation to something that looks less like Western individualism and more like the kingdom of God. Quote four, cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, a grace without the cross, a grace without Jesus living and incarnate. I'm going to read that whole quote, but I was like, I won't give you a title that's like 17 lines long. 
It says, cheap grace is a grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. See, in the story we're given, those who were out on the street exchanged their everyday clothing for garments that were appropriate for a wedding. We don't really know how that happened. You can only assume that they were provided at the wedding because like, if you're walking around in the street and someone runs out to invite you to a wedding, you probably don't have clothes appropriate for a wedding uh, generally. And so uh, there's... But it's inconsequential how it happens. We just know that they exchanged their everyday clothing for that which was appropriate to wear at the party that they were invited to. We're called to exchange our sin for his righteousness. And that's one that we teach well. You know, that uh, that's the garment that we wear, his Uh, Our sin for his righteousness. Yes, we're called to exchange our sinful ways for his ways. We're called to exchange our selfishness for a Christ-centered life. A life about me for a life that's about others. That's what it looks like to wear the garment that we're given. This is why when we come to share communion every week, that will offer a time of response and it will often lead you in a prayer, a confession, where we come to a place of recognising that even though we might have raised our hands once, that we each time need to come again to a place of repentance. Each week we come here, we have an opportunity to come to a place of repentance so that it's not just about the once-off but it's about the every time. It's about the everyday decision to put on the garment. Our text for this morning finishes with a message that says, the many are called, but few are chosen. This is a message that the word called chosen, the elect, speaks directly to the call that was on Israel in the Old Testament, where they were called to represent to the world who God was. And we see that ultimately they fail in doing that, and so God sends Jesus to represent fully who he is to the world, so that we wouldn't be able to say we didn't get it anymore. But by finishing this story, Jesus is saying that those who are called to the, who are invited to that party, their ultimate call is to represent him to the world. To be chosen was to represent him. The reason we need to begin to walk in these things, to dress the part, to look like who he calls us to look like is so that when we go out into the world, they don't just know we're a Christian because we've got a fish stuck on the back of our car or because we carry a Bible in our bag, but because we look like who he called us to look like.
Dr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was towards the end of his time at that uh, institution offered an opportunity to go and uh, study um, non-violent uh, action under Gandhi, who at the time, would it, that would have just been like the ultimate opportunity in the world. But he also had a conversation with his friend while he was in America. And he was challenged at that time about leaving the mess of the church in Germany behind. And so we don't really know why he decided, but after having that conversation with his friend, where he, uh, I think I wrote down the quote, I didn't write down the quote, his, uh, his friend said, uh, to him, what of the church in Germany? Uh, will you leave it to burn? He decides to go back to Germany to face almost certain death. Uh, he had, because he was so public in his uh, role in challenging the Nazi regime, many of his family members, his brother-in-laws, uh, were killed by the Nazis, and it was an almost certain reality that he would face that going back. But he did. Faced with what was like the best opportunity in the world and death, he chose to go back and serve the church in Germany, to live his life for others, not just for himself. Quote five, when, a Christ, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably most famous for writing the book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And if you've never read it, I would encourage you uh, to read it. He speaks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. A grace that calls us to repentance, a grace that requires of us our life, not just a decision, not just a grace that gives us a ticket into heaven, but a grace that actually causes heaven to become manifest in who we are. And so this morning I'm going to ask the band to come and leaders who are going to pray and serve communion if you want to get ready as well. God's desire is that all would be invited and all would come. His requirement is that we would come to a place of repentance, that we could actually be the people that he's calling us to be. This isn't an easy call. This is why the Bible talks about it being a narrow path. This is why the Bible talks about how uh, we need to take up our cross and follow him. Because it will require us to die to ourselves. 
I think sometimes in our modern Christianity where we only focus on us getting our life right, we'll stop, uh, I, I stop using drugs, that's probably good for me. I stop uh, you know, starting trouble in my relationships and treating people badly, well, that's probably good for me. You know, the things that, though, even though they might look hard, they ultimately actually work out good for us, but there's a bigger call when he calls us to live for others. It requires a sacrifice of self. When it goes beyond just dealing with our own, uh, our own behavioral problems or our own, like, personal things and goes beyond that into something bigger, into living out, into the call of who we are as the people of God. That challenges us to lay down our own desires, our own agendas, to love God and love others as we love ourselves, or better, as he first loved us. This is why we talk about social justice. This is why we talk about care for the poor. This is why we talk about feeding the hungry. This is why we talk about forgiveness. This is why we come to the end of our service and talk about uh, how those who are mourning, those who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, that God will speak over them a new name, Oaks of Integrity that they become a canopy of his righteousness. This is why we share that at the end of every service. So we go out from this place remembering who we're called to be. It's not just about coming to a place of confession every week and we share communion every week, but we come to a place of being commissioned, called into who he has said that we are to be. For some of us, the struggle's still in the personal stuff. We know we're not living right and there's things that God needs to deal with. And I know I spent two years coming up the front in every altar call because I know that God needed to deal with some very obvious things in my life. For some of us, the struggle is to see beyond the personal stuff. God, help me to open my eyes to the things that are going on around me in the world that I'd be able to begin to be part of addressing those two. For some of us, this struggle is with wanting to draw lines in the sand between us and others. You see, I think why confession is so important is that we can't have reconciliation without repentance. We can't be reconciled to God without first turning from what was separating us We can't be reconciled to each other around this table without first being willing to forgive, to see the better in others, to look beyond what's gone wrong, what words have been said or attitudes have been felt or things that have happened. For some of us, we've not yet made the choice taken the invite to even come to the party and so this morning I want to offer an opportunity would you stand church when Christ calls a man he bids him come and die the call is to come and lay down your life 
the same way he did for us. Not just in recognition that we've done wrong, in repentance for what we've done in the past, but we lay down our life for others as we begin to follow Jesus. We lay down our life every day when we choose to hear the instructions that we're given on how to follow Jesus. Would you just close your eyes for a moment, church? So give people a moment to consider whether they've accepted the invitation yet. See, you're being invited to a party. You're being invited to a celebration. You're being invited into God's new world. The question is, have you accepted the invitation? And once you have, and if you have accepted that invitation before, then the question daily is, are you wearing the garment that he's called you? Are you dressed for the occasion? So with every eye closed this morning, is there anyone here who knows they need to accept the invitation? still not looking around is there anyone here this morning do you want to make a commitment today to be dressed for the occasion to be followers of Jesus to daily decide to take up your cross is there anyone here this morning that knows they need to do that is there any others Just before we move into sharing communion, I'd like to invite those that raise their hands or anyone who knows that they should have to come and meet us at the front so someone can pray with you. So if you feel comfortable, would you come out this morning? Those that accept the invitation, those that know they need. And anyone else who knows they need prayer this morning. Would you come? Church, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer this morning. Would you pray this after me? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We have not loved you as you first loved us and not loved our neighbour, the stranger and the enemy. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your name. Amen. See, we're called to this table as we're reconciled to God 
and to each other. And sometimes that looks like having to confess what we've done wrong. God calls us to come to a place of confession to him, but also with each other. And so when we invite you to the table each week, you'll hear us say, go now and be a forgiver and run back. It's because we're called to come and be reconciled, not just to God, to each other, to be his body, to be a witness to who he is in the world. It requires us to come together, to be unified, to love each other. The word says that they'll know that we're his disciples by how we love one another. The church, this is the table. Not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little, you who have been here often and you who have just come for the first time, you who have tried to follow Jesus, you who have failed in following Jesus and you have just decided today, so come. Let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary, go and be a forgiver and run back because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit would encounter him here. So come. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hallelujah. So family, if you'll care to stand with me right now. If we, uh, we can get the benediction up. Thank you. If you care to, uh, to say this with me, church. Let's say this from our hearts, amen. This from Isaiah 61 is the foundation of this benediction. Church, we have come as we are, but by His grace we are sent out not the same. For in this place the Spirit, the anointed Christ, has been poured out on us. As He has exchanged a crown of beauty for our ashes, the oil of joy for our sorrow, a garment of praise for our spirit of despair. He has spoken over us a new name, Oaks of Integrity, and prophesied we will grow into a canopy of His beauty to bless and rebuild the city in His unfailing, non-violent love. So go, broadcast good news for the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, prophesy freedom for captives, let the blind see Set free the oppressed. Live jubilee and forgive, blessing our enemies. Cause Christ to shut the book on vengeance. Go now in his liberating grace. 
that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.